Welcome to the Shift Daily Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. It's a daily bite-sized morsel of our four-hour middle-of-the-night program. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. The Shift Daily Podcast starts right now. Today was a big day, wasn't it? It was a day that I finally could stop refreshing my screen. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, I started the uh, tedious task of refreshing my screen a few times a day on a Google search that said, did Bill Morneau resign? And I started that a few weeks ago. And that was been um, really where the conversation has gone uh, for quite some time. Turns out today's the day. Dwayne Brad joins me. He's a PhD professor of the Department of Economics, Justice, Political Studies, Mount Royal University. He's a political science uh, boss man. So, Dwayne, your day blew up, kind of like my day blew up today. How did you make out? Well, I thought I was going to spend uh, the evening uh, trying to virtually watch the Democratic Convention, which is having its first day. And the big scandal of the day involved uh, Governor General Julie Payette. And then at about 10, 10 to 5, I get this tweet. And all of a sudden, it's like Morneau has called a snap press conference. And I said at that time, he's, he's resigning because he's out. the night that um, he delivered his testimony to the House Finance Committee in the mm-hmm. morning. Mm-hmm. I was speaking that night, and I said, this man is going to have to resign. And that was the $41,000 surprise? Yeah, that was the, the $41,000 uh, check that he had forgotten about until that morning. And then over the last week or so, you've got all of these anonymous leaks out of the Prime Minister's office talking about a policy rift and concerns between Trudeau and Morneau. And then Trudeau brings in Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of Canada. Then uh, Carney becomes the governor of the Bank of England. All of a sudden, it's back in Canada. And... Trudeau taps him for an advisory position dealing with the economic recovery. So it's like you've got a coach. He's in trouble. The owner says, I have full confidence in the coach. Oh, and by the way, I've just hired Scotty Bowman as an advisor. You know his days are numbered. What was new was what he said in his press conference. That I didn't see coming. So for the press conference, um, you know, was as simple as, uh, I'm tapping out. I've wanted to do this for a long time. I mean, he kind of towed the line, didn't he? Or did I hear that wrong? Yeah. So where this came out of the blue is he said, I had no intention of running again. This was the perfect time to step down. And by the way, I'm really interested in becoming the secretary general of the organization of economic cooperation and development, which is, uh, I guess a good cover story that the PMO crocked up. I mean, the job is open. Finance ministers are qualified to do that job. But to say that I've been scandal ridden for six weeks, uh, but this is the perfect time to leave less than a year after I was elected, right in the middle of a pandemic where I've just brought in $250 billion in new spending. I have a $350 billion deficit and I'm going to resign to take on this other job. Oh, and I'm stepping down as MP. Two, I'm leaving my seat. Nobody believes that. I I couldn't believe the press gallery wasn't openly mocking him when he said it. Now, to give Morneau credit, he's a good soldier here. 
you know, he's taking the hit for the team, but nobody believes this cover story. He's stepping down to protect Trudeau. Well, and they did start, it looked like they uh, cut the presser short because all the questions were sort of different attacks from different angles of the same question, which was, did you get fired? And um, then they kind of said, someone stepped in and said, well, we're going to be done early. Thank you. And then they left, right? Like it sort of happened. Um, Pierre Polyevert posted this tweet. And I don't know if you saw it. I'm sure you did, but I'll read it to uh, you for everybody else's sake, too. It says, we're talking about a man who kept his money in a tax-preferred trust fund, was convicted of repeatedly violating the Ethics Act, and took tens of thousands of dollars of gifts from people he gave government grants. But enough about Justin Trudeau. Bill Morneau resigned tonight. Yeah, I mean, that's Pierre Polyev. He's taken a few liberties, but, you know, the, the point has been made. I actually think... Uh, what Morneau did is worse than what Trudeau did. He took a private trip, uh, acknowledged it only three years after the fact. Um, and this occurred after the ethics commissioner had discussed Trudeau's trip to the Aga Khan. So mm-hmm. he should have known that this was incorrect. Now, I don't think we comped him this trip because Bill Morneau is the finance minister of Canada. They comped him the trip because Bill Morneau is a very wealthy man. And his wife, Nancy McCain, from the McCain French Fry dynasty, is also wealthy, and they donate a lot of money. That's why they comped it the trip. But to announce, you know, that you've repaid the money, and they ask when, and he goes, well, just before I met with this committee, doesn't sound very good. And then when the Kielbergers were on, they asked, when did you invoice Bill Morneau for this? It was the day before he wrote the check. So uh, <laughs> clearly Morneau is in trouble there, but so is Trudeau. Um, so he's hoping that losing a finance minister is a big enough hit that Trudeau can um, can suffer or can, can survive. And by offering him a apparent face-saving gesture by saying stepping down to go to this international job or to apply for this international job, you know, allows Morneau a degree of, of dignity. But I don't think that's how it's going to play. That's not how it played out. So there's two things that I hear from that, Dwayne, and, and one of the, the reasons why I enjoy our conversations is this is your lane, not mine. So I'm just going to ask them um, sort of as a, as a Canadian and, um, and, and try to be as direct with them as I can and see where your clarity lands on it. So what I hear in this, for example, is um, go out peacefully, look, uh, give up your seat. We've got to have someone, a martyr here. Um, we'll get you the other job. Or at least we'll try to get you the other job if we're still in power by then. Um, That's all. That's the best we can do. And so that seems like that was the way out why there's nobody else getting thrown under the bus. Because the Kielbergers in that conversation started to sound like there was people getting thrown under the bus, right? When the documents started to come out. The other part of it is that there's been an awful lot of speculation of, I called it trouble in paradise on the show last night, between Trudeau and Morneau in regards to sort of a green recovery versus directly dealing with debt and a little bit of a philosophical difference. So which piece of that do you think, or is it a little bit of both? Because it, I mean, it, if there's a philosophical difference, that would kind of make sense too. It, it's quite possible there was a philosophical difference. And it's also possible that these were targeted leaks coming out of the prime minister's office to try to convince Morneau it was time for him to go for another reason. 
and and again bringing Carney aboard, even in a small role, but you know, discussions about a much larger role, I think is all part of that, uh, part of that picture. And I mean, more no, you rarely move finance minister. And, and I would expect that there would be a new minister appointed early tomorrow morning before the markets open because markets don't like finance ministers moving around. They tend to last a long time. Jim Flaherty was there eight years. Paul Martin was there over eight years. Michael Wilson was there almost seven years. And Bill Morneau was there almost five years. You try to have stability in that position. Uh, Morneau leaves and you're looking around that bench and you're thinking, well, who has a finance experience? Who has deep economic experience? Because Morneau was CEO of Morneau Shipley, the large human resources uh, company that his dad founded. So, you know, he was the CEO of a very large company. He didn't go into politics for the money. He's an independently wealthy man. He went in there to try to do good um, to, his, to his credit. But you look at everyone else, and you don't see a lot of finance experience and so where are they going to get that um scott bryson had it and bryson resigned in the middle of the first term ralph goodell had it but ralph goodell was defeated in the last election christia freeland was a business writer was a, a business columnist that's not quite the same thing as playing a major corporate role or, or finance role and she's got so many other things on her plate you know who is who in this caucus is is available and Morneau is probably saying look at I came into politics to do one job right I'm either finance minister or I am not and yeah. he chose the uh, the outdoor the other problem that Trudeau has is when he ran in 2015 he ran as part of a team he said you know I've, I've got a good group of people around me here it is five years later, and yeah, you're going to have some attrition over five years. So Goodell loses his job, Scott Bryson resigns, uh, Stefan Dion becomes an ambassador, John McCallum becomes an ambassador. But then you look at Jody Wilson-Raybo, and you look at Jane Philpott, and now you look at Bill Morneau, three very senior ministers, all leaving under scandalous terms. And that pool that team has gotten smaller and smaller. It's Trudeau, it's Freeland, it's not a whole lot more after that. No, why? Chris, uh, Christopher, um, Christopher Freeland is. I mean, she's sort of like on the in the batter's box anyway. It's almost like the party's just kind of making sure that she's active and around just in case he cocks it up more anyway, and they've got a backup plan. Yeah. I mean, she seems to be in the succession that uh, you know grooming more than I've seen in a long time. Well, and that has been said the same about Mark Carney, that maybe finance minister might be a job too small for him. Mm, you know, um, and, and I mean, there have been clashes. I mean, the, the Martin Kretchen clash, that was probably the biggest, but while they had a good working relationship, um, Martin was clearly scheming behind Kretchen's back. And that's why the, we had that whole debate, you know, about, was he fired? Did he quit? And that's when Martin gave the great line about he got quit. Yeah, he got quit. And that he was brought quit. up today, too, which is, you know, not to be forgotten. That was brought up in the press today. Did you get quit? And he didn't really get it, which was yeah. ironic. That was a proof well, that he wasn't really a politician, like, right? Morneau may be a businessman. He's not, was not a very good politician. 
And I'll just give one small personal anecdote about this. So he buys the Trans Mountain Pipeline, right? He has a press conference or a breakfast meeting in Calgary the next morning. So I'm at a table and this is the Calgary oil and gas community had bought tickets to hear Bill Morneau talk about pipelines that he bought the night before. He walks out for breakfast. It was a nice breakfast, nice hotel breakfast. <laughs> and he gave a stump speech that had nothing to do with pipelines. It had to do with pension reform and it had to do with unemployment rates and various things, entirely misreading the room. Then it breaks. You could see there were people actually walking out um, while he was speaking. Uh, and then he does the scrum and all the questions are about the pipeline. Yeah. Right. I mean, that tells you the lack of political savviness uh, that, that Morneau had because he had never been into politics before he became finance minister. It is remarkable. Um, does it look better if he quits? Does it look better if he's fired? Because part of my gods right now says it looks better on Trudeau if he just fires him and it looks snake oil sneaky uh, with the deal for the new job and the I'm going to quit and the whatever storyline that I don't think anybody's going to buy into. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem that Trudeau had, I mean, he's clearly being ruthless here. But if he had been even that much more ruthless and said, look, I can't abide by this ethics violation. I need to fire Bill Morneau. Trudeau's got his own ethics investigation going on. Ethics investigation number three. So how do you how do you do that? And if you say, well, you know, we, we have this fundamental philosophical difference. That's why I had to remove him. That just cropped up. He's been finance minister for almost five years. This philosophical difference, you've just emerged. So I think Trudeau is trying to be too clever by half. And it was so transparent that, that people looked right through it. And this story isn't over. I mean, reporters are going to be digging into this and you're going to get all sorts of, of comments that are going to flow from this. And if things were as Capaseco, uh, as as they're making it appear that this was an amicable divorce, and Trudeau supported Morneau, and Morneau supported Trudeau. Wouldn't Trudeau have been at the press conference? Yep, he was. Yeah, it was a well timed tweet. Was all it was, right? Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, it's remarkable. Dwayne Brad, thank you so much, Professor of Political Science, Mount Royal University. Um, appreciate the insight and the candor. Um, what a day um, uh, that this Monday was. And uh, we'll see what happens in the morning, I guess. Hey, what everybody's Monday's uh, market Monday's already been a long week, Shane. It has been a long week. Thanks so much, Dwayne. All right, you're welcome. This is the Shift Daily Podcast. Well, my day blew up today. I don't know if your day blew up today, but I know David Mosscroft's day blew up today. He joins me now. Uh, David, what were you doing at about, uh, well, it was about 5 o'clock Mountain Time for me, probably just about 7 o'clock your time. What were you doing for the day and planning for the evening that didn't happen? I had finished writing and mixed myself the best Manhattan north of the 49th parallel. Sounds wonderful. And I was ready to go play some video games, watch an old movie, and Kick now back. here we are. Yeah. Well, I have some good news for you, by the way. Um, you you, you are allowed to... Yeah, well, no, not that. I don't have a Manhattan for you. I wish I did. Um, I, I, you are allowed to say dropping balls on this show. <laughs> Just so you know. Oh, um, you know, this is what happens when you do radio Eastern time. 
It's late. <laughs> late. After, you know, you start doing it at 10 o'clock, 11 o'clock, midnight. You start, you know, you, you're into you're into relief innings you know? there's not a yeah you're like fifth overtime uh, there's not a lot of uh language here that's uh, going to be offside just so you know but so you can breathe a sigh of relief here david uh david is a political theorist he writes for all kinds of different things your own book um too dumb for democracy uh you've got your podcast the open um open debate podcast plus you know washington post columnist and um, communications with the university of ottawa and all those long list of things so this is your hometown uh, that this stuff's blowing up in. What's your first thought? Bill Moore no quits. Do you buy it? Well, I certainly buy that he's quit. Uh, that, well, actually, you know what? I'm not entirely sure how I do buy that he's quit. Right? That's that what I'm saying. Uh, yeah, I buy that he's leaving. I buy that he's uh, leaving, but I'm not quite sure that I buy that he quit. Yeah, you know, let, let's let's look at the first thing. It it makes no sense to me that you're the finance minister during a pandemic. You have a $343 billion deficit, a, a debt heading to $1 trillion. And you say, you know what? Now is the right moment for me to go try to become the head of the OECD. Good luck, folks. Well, you don't become that, the finance minister because you don't care about money. Like it's something that you study and learn. Um, you know, even with his family exactly. business, he spent a lot of time around it. So to walk away from a project like that just seems not even natural. Well, he said, look, I, I never intended to stick around for more than two terms and so on and so forth. Well, he's he's barely finished one. So none of that reasoning holds up. So there's plainly something, it seems to me at least reasonable to conclude there's something else going on. It's irritating that we don't entirely know what it is because we're left to speculate. And we're left with two schools of thought on the speculation, at least. It's the we controversy, and he's getting thrown under the bus. Mm -hmm. Or there is deep uh, philosophical, programmatic disagreements between him and the prime minister. And if if the finance minister and the prime minister clash, we know which one gets to leave. Okay, are we going to bounce this ping pong ball around, David? <sighs> I mean, it's probably both to some extent. Well, he's I been there for five years. They're buddies, and you really think that now's the time they're going to disagree? Well, I think they've been disagreeing for a while to some extent, but you work together. I think it has more to do with we – let's put it this way. If the we scandal doesn't erupt, does Bill Morneau leave? I think the answer is no. So yeah. that says something. Yeah, it does say something. Okay, so then the, the disagreement stuff, um, has the prime minister's office been slowly leaking out information to set this up um, quietly as a disagreement and, and a reason for him to go? Uh, without you know blatantly looking like the bad guy um, i had Dwayne brad on earlier and he did say this he said if this was hey man good luck with your new job why wasn't the prime minister at the press at the press briefing yeah and why was it at seven o'clock at night after and, the markets close yeah and why the markets by the way who, who shrugged at the news um and, and why why now uh, you know why right now? So I, I think the the PMO probably had something to do with laying the groundwork. If we believe Occam's razor, I mean, that's certainly the most plausible explanation. And again, it is the sort of thing that happens in Ottawa. You get five anonymous sources in a, in a handful of stories. It looks pretty bad. There was tension between those offices. If I had to guess, I would say there was a, the hand of the PMO doing some of this groundwork. Yeah. Well, I mean, it has to be. So, okay, here we are. We've got a, when the, 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 <laughs> I call them the Kegelbergers. Sorry. Um, oh <laughs> when the Kegelbergers were, um, getting 
starting to throw under other people under the bus, it started to become more and more apparent that there was some self-preservation going on, self-protectionism starting to happen. It became more and more apparent. Now, this ball, I think, has been rolling for a few weeks, don't you think? I mean, some of the, uh, some of the new people that have been brought in to consult have, uh, would certainly be indicative of that. Yeah, and again, this, this sort of thing happens. I mean, and especially during a pandemic, it's going to happen. People are going to make mistakes. They're going to be looking around for alternative perspectives. Uh, but that said, they may also start looking around for scapegoats and sacrificial lambs, mm-hmm. right? So I suspect there was there's plenty of that going on. That said, I don't think it's going to work. I mean, if that was the play, I don't think it's going to work. Do Canadians buy this? This is the question that we're going to ask the audience when we're done this anyway. Do Canadians buy that this is uh, Bill Morneau deciding that he wanted a new job and he was going to take a career path? It's a good question. I mean, I suspect there'll be some folks, some entrepreneurial data folks asking that somewhere. I, I think to the extent that Canadians are paying attention, and lots of them won't be, lots of them will just be thinking, how do I pay my rent, my mortgage? You know, what am I going to do with my kids in the fall? How do I feed myself? Do I have a job in a month? Uh, but the ones that are paying attention, I think we'll see there's something that doesn't quite add up here because it just, it doesn't add up. It doesn't make any sense. I go back to the point that you don't leave this sort of job at this moment to go pursue the OECD after saying you're sticking around for two terms when you're one term and a year in. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it just on the face of it, it doesn't add up. It, it seems like a poorly choreographed exit. But that said, a month from now, are we still going to even be talking about it? I doubt it. There's a small chance. I, I mean, I, I, this is worth serious, taking serious. There's a small chance that we actually end up better as a country a couple months from now with a new finance minister. Right. This might go well. Mm-hmm. But at the moment, it looks pretty dodgy. Does it um, with conservative uh, party leadership happening? In short order, plus, you know, the Bloc Quebecois threatening to, you know, push an election. Is this starting to look like a perfect storm that could either A, save the Liberal Party because there is enough reinvention, or B, just prove that, you know, this family is as dysfunctional as it gets? Well, every family is dysfunctional. The Liberal Party is particularly dysfunctional. As I was saying on Twitter the other earlier today, Liberals have been feuding internally as long as there have been liberals. You know, look at the history of even finance ministers and prime ministers, Jean Chrétien, Paul Martin, uh, John Turner, Pierre Trudeau. You know, they've been feuding for years. And when was the Liberal Party not feuding? Going back to, to Paul Martin Sr. and Pierre Trudeau and John Turner. There's constant feuds in the Liberal Party. It's who they are. So uh, it's not unusual. In fact, it's, it's been actually atypical for the, the the Trudeau years to have been as calm as they have been. Hmm. It's actually been sort of unusual. So that part's not surprising at all. Go figure. Well, that's not a very good base though, David. Like when we're saying, when we're talking about, I mean, maybe that's indicative because our just, you know, our natural conversation kind of says, you know, it's not as terrible as it has been. I mean, that, is that really the, the place where you and I just landed? Because that's kind of where it sounded like we were not even the lesser of the evils. It was just the, it's not as terrible as it used to be. That doesn't sound like a great place to create a country from, does it? 
No, I mean, we, we limp along and do okay. I mean, I, the, the question is, do we get policies that serve Canadians, especially during a pandemic? And I think the liberal response has been pretty mixed. Not all that bad for having been a scramble response that everyone was trying to deal with. I mean, these are human beings who are working long hours and trying to figure it out as they go. Well, it's not like I there's a roadmap either. Exactly. I mean, it's been 100 years since we've seen a pandemic like this. Uh, and, and no, this time we're seeing it in the middle of, well, in the year of globalization, right? Which yeah. makes it even more difficult. But uh, it's been an okay response. It's, I would have preferred universality. The liberals don't tend towards universality. But look, it's it's better than it might have been. The, what we ought to do, though, later, when we have a chance to step back and look at this whole thing, is say, okay, well, do we have good structures in our politics that allow for disagreement to be productive. Because look, I spend my life disagreeing with people. You probably, well, you do too. It's part of our jobs, right? I like to think I ask questions. <laughs> ask questions and sometimes you agree and sometimes you disagree, but, that, but that's part of it. And, th- and thank God you do it because it's in asking questions that we produce the sort of talk that we need to come up with things like our preferences and ideas and so on. That's all good. When, when the system is working well in a partisan system, that a lot of the party nonsense is contained to caucus and cabinet, right? And they work out all their dysfunctional nonsense inside the party. Mm -hmm. And that's what you want because you want the government to be able to govern and you don't want us to have to spend all of our time doing what we're doing now, which is talking about the scandal and the nonsense and the feuding. And, but when that system breaks down, that stuff seeps out into the public, which is what we've been saying the last couple of days uh, in news stories. And it makes an awful, God awful mess, Right. Um, so that that's the dysfunctional bit, and that's deeply problematic, especially right now. The election talk is that too, right? To, to go back to your point a minute ago about the election, which I don't think we're going to have because the liberal numbers are actually still pretty good. Um, you know, that stuff serves to create an awful lot of drama, but distract from from big problems that that we're having that we need to solve. But again we're not going to be governed by a committee of angels. We're stuck with who we're stuck with. We just hope that they behave themselves. So let's hope they can get it together mm-hmm. in the in the weeks to come and keep it inside the family. Well, to the point of we're stuck with who we're stuck with, we did actually put them there like on purpose. So that would be a thing. Um, sort of, yeah. Well, yeah, right? Like, I mean, <laughs> as, as, a, as a country, we did. Um, you know, yeah. I mean, it's, like it or not, I suppose everyone can add their stripe to that comment. Um, the... When we look at this now, are we done with this or is there more to come? Oh, I think that if you mean the we kerfuffle affair scandal, whatever or you want Trudeau to call it. Or Trudeau screw-ups maybe. I don't know. Trudeau, well, we're certainly not done with those. I mean, but then again, that's not, you know, unique to Justin Trudeau. I mean, the Harper years were full of these shenanigans, the different sorts of shenanigans, but shenanigans nonetheless. The Chrétien years were full of them too. No, the Mulroney years, my lord. Yeah. You know, it's not it, and the Trudeau years. I mean, this is just part of government. Government, but I, I don't think that certainly the we scandal is not going to go away anytime soon. The opposition is going to drag this on as long as possible. They have a minority parliament; it makes it easier to do that. Uh, slightly tougher because of the pandemic, but they're able to do it. They remember that one of the things that sunk the Martin government and eventually the Liberals altogether in the early 2000s was the Gomery Inquiry and the sponsorship scandal. They see that model perhaps as an opportunity to do it again. So I don't think any of this is done. And as for Justin Trudeau as as Justin Trudeau, 
this isn't the first kerfuffle. It's not the first ethical lapse. We remember the Aga Khan. We remember SNC-Lavalin. We remember blackface. Mm-hmm. And we're going to remember we. So I don't think you would hope that it would be the last. I don't think if past is prologue that it will. Yeah. I mean, you did say um, we remember those things, but I'm not quite sure that we seem to. As sad as that makes me to say that. Well, we have, it depends on how you think about how people make up their minds. I mean, one of the theories in, in political decision-making, this is what I wrote my book about, is called the running tally theory, which is basically you've got some idea of someone or something in your head. And when something happens, you check a box. I like it. I don't like it. You update and you move on with your life. And so when there's an, eth- you know, an ethical scandal, you check the, the box, the bad box. I don't like this. And then you move on. Now, someone might come along later and remind you. And you're like, oh, yeah, right. I didn't like that. And that stacks up as we go. So it probably does remind people. And keep in mind, the liberals were reduced to a minority Mm -hmm. uh, after their majority. So they they were, in some sense, punished and held accountable. But it also speaks to the quality of the opposition parties. I mean, the other side of the equation here, the other side of the government equation, is the opposition. And there's a lot of people who look at the opposition and say, no, thank you. They would prefer the, the devil they know, baggage and all to the devil they don't know or don't want to know yeah. in terms of in, in the, on the opposition side. And it speaks to the need for a strong opposition in this country who's ready to replace the government. Now, I'm a socialist. I'm a filthy red. I, pref- I happen to prefer that, uh, that a strong opposition is the new Democrats. Other people will prefer it as the Greens and the Conservatives or the Bloc. But you want a strong opposition so that you can hold the government to account and replace them if necessary. I don't think we have that right now. No, I would agree. I would say that um, all of the parties lack leadership, something fierce. Um, you know, I think Jugmeet Singh. And I, you know, it's interesting because I always this is what I always say about politics today. Here, here's the state of all political parties is that I don't have to share where I land to share this, that Jugmeet Singh is probably the only guy that I would really like to sit down and have a coffee with and ask him for an hour of his time just to talk to him because I think he's a good communicator and I think that he's got a brain on his head. The problem with that is there's probably zero topics we would agree on. (laughs) Um, But even though that there are zero topics we would agree on, he's probably the only one I would ask for a coffee. So what does that say about politics and leadership in our country? Well, you know, know, there are moments when... I catch myself looking back to the past and say, on balance, if you add up all the party leaders, are we more impressed in 2020 than we would have been in, say, 1968 or less impressed? And I think, well, you know, 1968, you've got Pierre Trudeau and uh, Tommy Douglas and Robert Stanfield, and I think maybe Rene Cowett. I can't remember if he was around then or not. But, you know, you had a, quite the lineup of, of, of caliber, high caliber folks. But then I think, is it really worse or am I falling for this golden age thinking, right? Uh, I don't know. But I, I, I do know that the state of the opposition parties in terms of their performance and accountability suggests that they, there's a lot of work to do. And then I look to the liberals and think I find Justin Trudeau underwhelming both programmatically and aesthetically, although I care more about the programming. So it, 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 I want to get into what what's changed, right? I mean, is it uh, 
is it the communications era that we're in? Is it the internet? Is it social media? Is it the pace of everything? Is it the fact that we've got a 24-hour news cycle? Is it the fact that things are more complicated now? Mm. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, but my hypothesis, my sense is we have a lower caliber leadership group than in, in 2020 than we did in 1968. But that's just a hypothesis. Yeah. I mean, I would agree. Why would you run for politics today? You're going to get lambasted no matter what you do. Oh, it's awful. I mean, and, I mean, again, there's people there's yelling the, at people's doorways, screaming and swearing at their staff because they disagree. And it's becoming more violent, right? I mean, you, you sort of you reference what happened to Catherine McKenna in Ottawa, which is reprehensible. Uh, you know, Michael Wernick, the the former clerk of the Privy Council, who was who left during the SNC uh, saga, warned that uh, violence the threats and the, and the violent discourse was getting worse and he was worried someone was going to get shot. Now he was mocked at the time because he was, you know, talking about it in the, in the context of SNC and people thought, what are you doing? You know, what does this have to do with anything? But he was right. And we're seeing, you know, the governor general, the cost of protecting the governor general has gone up in part because of, of growing threats to Canadian politicians. We had someone ram the gate at Rideau hall mm-hmm. Uh, it's a deep concern, and we think that it can't happen here, and that it's a uniquely foreign problem, especially American. And we're, it's different; we're peaceful, but it's a huge problem here. The discourse is toxic, often and violent, and who wants to be a part of that? Who wants to have their family be a part of that? So yeah. there is work we have to do to to fix that. Because you're right; it's going to be hard to attract the best people uh, in in whoever it is you get. They don't deserve that nonsense. I don't care which party you're from. Nobody no, deserves that. Nobody does. I mean, nobody in anybody's job does. It just yeah. it's, it's a job. Although in defense of the increased spending, uh, Julie Payette has been reported to be running away from the RCMP and hiding from them. So that would cost more money. So let's just be clear on don't that even, one. Don't even get me started. That one might be I, yeah. self-inflicted. So let's just, let's she, just leave that one alone. As long as we're on resignations, that would be an appropriate resignation as well. No kidding. All right. Thanks so much for the time. David Moscrop didn't even drop any balls here. Um, that's disappointing, How do you know? but, uh, you never know. Right. Um, good luck with the cocktail. I hope you have one. Thank you so much. This is the shift daily podcast coming up. We're going to talk about nudies. I've been introduced to the nudie today. Oh, uh, well, not that kind of nudie. No, not that kind of nudie. a different one. Yeah, the nudie suit. Maddie introduced me to the nudie suit today. We're talking about shoes and uh, stuff off the air because that's what we talk about. And um, and uh, the nudie suit. If you're not familiar with the nudie suit, we'll throw it into a, like an art, a, a mock. Are you okay? Coming up here. I like the nudie suit, Matt. I think you should do the nudie suit with no shirt. Uh, oh. Ooh. I don't know. Like, oh. Yeah. Hmm. I don't think it would look that sharp without a shirt. Like it's it's a... It's a whole package kind of deal, the nudie <laughs> no, suit. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, you go on here and you look at the nudie suits and the nudie suit, like with no shirt is absolutely rock star. Uh, there's a Tumblr account um, for nudie suits and I'll send you like, it's absolute rock star. If anything was Matt MacArthur and uh, you know, your band, um, this is it right here. This is it right here. I'm going to post this onto, onto the Twitter, onto the tweeter and prove you right. Please, please prove do. me right. Prove you right. Whoever I'm proven right. Greg Fish, who am I proven right? Um, I don't know, but I do know that I now have the overwhelming urge to Google what the hell a nudie suit is after this. Yeah. Check your uh, check your uh, text there, Matt. Uh, let me tell you, it's amazing. 
Um, we're going to do that. We've also, strangely enough, see, so what happened was is Canadian politics came up on the conversation today because the Canadian finance minister quit. And there's some people want to talk about it. Some people don't. And so our conversation has gone from Canadian politics. This is why the show is amazing. We went from Canadian politics to mayonnaise to nudie suits. And now we're going to talk about um, to why my why I think this is Greg Fish's life. This is what I think happens to Greg Fish. He's sleeping. And then all of a sudden he wakes up and he goes, I know we should move to Titan. And then he goes back to sleep again. And then he wakes up and writes an article in the morning. That's what I think Greg Fish does. Close, except for I usually have those thoughts over my morning coffee or in the shower. All right. Well, I promise you, in the morning, you are going to be um, absolutely uh, thinking about the nudie suit. Am I right, Matt? See what I said? Oh, yeah, for 100%. There it is. Absolutely. There it is. All right. Anyway, um, we... <laughs> this is where the show's gone. It's what it is, man. This is what it is. It is what it is. Mayonnaise and nudie suits. It sounds like a movie that you can watch online. Um. Greg Fish, your latest article has some very, very good points to it, um, including some points about Mars that I um, that I that I did not know. And I do want to come back to that whole how the hell do you come up with this stuff uh, moment? Because, you know, you you <laughs> we talked about all kinds of things in the world of weird things. I mean, it really is Greg Fish's world. Uh, the world of fish is a special place. It really is. I like it. That's good. That's good. That's good to hear. <laughs> so how did you get Welcome. started on this topic that we should be waiting on mars and moving to the moon and titan instead well actually believe it or not i was talking to a friend who works for um jpl and they were talking and he was talking about some of the missions that they're doing and one of the things that kind of kept coming up is that there's certain missions and there's certain things that are kind of done by inertia like, we, we already spent all this effort to research this and to do this and to do that, and there's a lot of science fiction that kind of inspired people. Um, and so some of the things that we are trying to do are basically, they, they might not necessarily be the best investments of our time, um, but uh, they're scientifically valuable, but at the same time, they might not be great long-term goals. So, one of the, so it reminded me of uh, some papers I read back in the day they essentially argued that colonizing Mars is actually, it's presented to us as it's almost like the next step. Well, we've been to the moon. We can probably build a long-term base on the moon. So obviously, we can do the same thing on Mars. And the thought is, well, yes, it's farther away, but we can, we can use moon as kind of a dress rehearsal, then move on to Mars, and then move on to the rest of the solar system. Because Mars is, Mars is kind of Earth-like, you know, yes, it's very cold, but it's still within terrestrial range cold. And yes, it's a desert, but we're used to deserts here. We have desert-like environments that very much simulate many things on Mars. Well, the problem, however, is that Mars um, is very exposed to radiation that we are not really quite sure how to deal with yet. Um, it is just far enough away to think that we can get help from Earth, but we really efficiently, effectively can't. Um, it will require us to essentially have astronauts underground for many, many years until we actually start building any sort of cities. And even though there's constant talk about, well, maybe one day we'll terraform Mars and we have plans for that, um, there are studies that show that even if we released all the carbon dioxide to try and thicken up the atmosphere, it would still fall painfully short of an environment where humans can, you know, even uh, survive without a spacesuit, much less a mask. So 
even though Mars is close and it seems somewhat Earth-like, it's still kind of settling stuff on an advanced mode. So with that in mind, some scientists, some planetary scientists started thinking, well, what places are better to colonize? And they really settled on Titan. Hmm. So Titan, for everybody who doesn't know, is also a moon. Yes, it's the moon of Saturn. Um, it's that uh, really orangish, hazy moon. We can't see through its um, through its cloud cover, um, but we have telescopes and probes that have seen through it. We've had a lander on it, a Huygens lander. Um, so we actually do have a pretty good idea what it's like. And interestingly enough, it's basically like a bizarro cryo-Earth. It's got a very thick atmosphere. It's got a lot of atmospheric pressure. In fact, um, standing on the surface of Titan is like being 15 meters underwater on Earth. Like it's got that much pressure. Like the, like the it, weight? Yes. Hmm. It doesn't meters, have a that would be heavy. Yeah, it doesn't have a magnetosphere of its own, but it's it's usually floating within Saturn's magnetosphere, which is extremely powerful. So there's a lot of radiation protection right there. There's a lot of liquid on the surface. And actually, liquid is very important because on the moon and on the Mars, and on Mars, the dust is not like dust the way that we think of it. No, it's regolith. It's basically like um, tiny little shards of glass that are electrostatically charged, and they get everywhere, and they can short out electronics. If you breathe them in, they will slice through your lungs at a microscopic level, giving you lung mm. cancer. Like, it's incredibly nasty stuff, and a lot of missions to the moon and Mars that involve humans essentially plan for how do we introduce as little regolith as possible through any means necessary, because even a little bit of that stuff could derail the whole mission long term. So because there's so much moisture of alien and, and, and more terrestrial-like origins on Titan, we don't have to worry about regolith. So a lot of these little problems that could derail missions um, get solved on Titan. The big challenge is really the travel time. We need to create completely different propulsion methods. And the other issue is that we couldn't launch to, we couldn't launch from Earth. Like we couldn't launch a crewed mission from Earth to Titan. We'd have to do a lot of dress rehearsals on the moon and we'd have to launch from the moon. So the idea is we'd still have to go to the moon as our staging area. Um, to have um, to, to create spaceships that can simulate at least partially simulate gravity so people can kind of feel comfortable on the journey and they can survive it a little bit more and we can we can try and protect ourselves from uh, from radiation with there's a lot of ideas that that have to do with essentially creating artificial magnetospheres um, and things like that so we could experiment with all that on the moon and the advantage is that because it's so close to earth, if something happens, we can't just jump to Earth. We can communicate with with Earth in almost real time on the moon. And we can get a very steady um, conveyor, conveyor belt of supplies coming to the moon from the Earth without inventing a whole lot of new technology. Okay. Two questions come to mind. Uh, number one is I, I maybe I've just heard or maybe I assumed that taking off from earth is so incredibly uh you know fuel intensive it's one of the problems that if you were taking off from the moon that would be helpful because it is way less fuel intensive to get going would that be a thing yeah absolutely that's exactly why would we want to use it at, um as our staging area because it has one sixth the gravity six times the bank for our buck 
Okay, maybe I have three questions. Uh, third question, second question is, have you asked Elon Musk? Because he seems to have this figured out. I don't think Elon Musk really cares about the opinion of anyone other than Elon Musk. Good point. Third question is, we just had uh, one of the guests on from Biosphere 2 last week, Mark Hunter, uh, Mark Nelson. He was, one of the, um, he was one of the guys inside Biosphere 2. They tried to build that world inside the Biosphere that was completely self-sustaining. Now, it was 100%, the determination was it was 100% self-contained, but it was not self-sustaining as the carbon dioxide levels get too high. So I can't, when you talk about sort of colonizing the moon first before going on to Mars or to Titan, I can't help but think of that. So, because there's no real way to do that. So when you sit here and think about this, Greg Fish, how in the world would we pull that off when we, they couldn't even pull it off in New Mexico? Well, actually, funny enough, one of the things that, that immediately raised my brow about Biosphere 2 is that they try to, they try to combine a lot of different environments all together. Yeah, they do and try to make it like to, a world. Yeah, and to make all of that thrive, just, you, you can't really do that because all of these different worlds have their own little ecosystems and you can't squeeze them into a tiny area and have the whole thing self-supporting. So that's definitely one of the issues. The other issue is that the technology wasn't there. Um, you know, we've, we've made advancements in leaps and bounds since then. Uh, and Biosphere 2 was very valuable in teaching people kind of like what not to do and what pitfalls to avoid. So yes, this could not have done, been done in the 90s. But, you know, now in the 2020s, we have a much better idea of how to do that. We, we understand what may have went wrong. And a lot of the self-sustaining systems that we're thinking about um, are very much based on living off the land, extracting things that are already there. Um, it's, we're not trying to bring our world with us. Because that's that's really the, the the whole biosphere idea, and actually there's a there's a documentary on Netflix about it that's very fascinating for for anyone yep. who who wants to have a watch. Uh, I think, you, yeah, and you can I think you can also watch it on Hulu as well. Um, it's so five bucks if, on YouTube. It's yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's it's a very good documentary and gives you a really good insight into how this project was born. And the idea was we're going to preserve our environment. And we can take it somewhere else in case something horrible happens to Earth and we pollute it too much. Well, that's the space will not tolerate that. Space travel will not tolerate that. We have to adapt ourselves to the environment in which we live. That's that's just how it's going to be. So the whole plan of we'll create a self-sustaining system that's like Earth has to has to go. We will create a self-sustaining system that will work best for the environment that we are trying to settle and only for the environment that we're trying to settle. Okay, that makes sense to me. Now, you did talk about this one piece in the article about 15 minutes. Um, to quote your article, it said, even the hardiest, most radiation-resistant bacteria on Earth will die 15 minutes under these conditions. Is that real? Like, for real, on, on Mars, like, it's really that, that nasty? Yeah, yeah, it's really that bad. Like There's... cockroaches and everything? Oh, that actually, funny enough, cockroaches are some of the more susceptible insects to radiation moths actually do a lot better but hmm. um there is a bacteria that grows in um radioactive waste pools and if you take that bacteria and you subject it to the same level of uv radiation that the surface of mars gets it dies in 15 minutes hmm. this wow. is bacteria that you could hit with the radiation from a nuclear bomb and it will be just fine but 
you expose it to Mars for 15 minutes, it's gone. And the reason is because radiation is basically just, just energy constantly bombarding your molecules and your atoms, and eventually they'll come apart. No matter how many defenses you put up against it, eventually long enough exposure will tear whatever organism there is to shreds. And the fact that there is no, mag no magnetic field to protect you, there's no atmosphere. Well, the, at the, the atmosphere is so thin that it doesn't really absorb very much radiation on its way down or scatter these particles or diffuse them. It's, it's basically just being sterilized. Like the surface of Mars is just being constantly sterilized by UV hmm. rays. Uh, it's remarkable. A great article. Again, um, I, 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 the morning coffee part, not sure if I want to be there, but I'm really curious. I'm like, I kind of want to have morning coffee now. Um, and talk to Greg Fish. It's worldofweirdthings.com. The article is why we may want to settle on the moon and Titan before Mars. Science fiction has taught us humanity's next destination in space could be Mars, but science might disagree. Thanks so much, Greg. Always a pleasure. Thanks for being here. Uh, Greg Fish right there, or as his friends call him, Fish. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Tune into the show online or on the radio. 